Welcome to the Future Friendly Podcast, where we sit down with leaders from organizations from around the world to share learnings and tips on how they're making change on the ground and fast forwarding to a better future. I'm Sakshi Joshi, and co-hosting with me is Johnny Rogers. Hey, everyone. Joining us on today's episode is Matthew Taylor, the Chief Executive of the RSA. They're a 270-year-old research organization based in the UK that's focused on driving forward practical solutions to societal change. Before leading the RSA, Matthew was the Chief Advisor on Political Strategy to the UK's Prime Minister, Tony Blair. Also joining us in this episode is Nick Gower, the co-founder of Future Friendly. He's something of a fan of Matthew's as his thinking around the well-being economy has influenced our work at Future Friendly and how we speak about delivering well-being outcomes at scale. So Sakshi, what resonated with you from our conversation with Matthew? Yeah, I think in Future Friendly, we've been talking a lot about how it is a privilege that we get to work with organizations that talk about mission-driven teams and teams with a purpose. And we got into a really interesting conversation with Matthew Taylor about, um, you know, are we actually romanticizing that every job needs to have this clearly defined purpose and mission written into the strategy? Or is it possible for those everyday jobs to make a difference? And especially because of, you know, the last year being COVID, those essential work and essential jobs are actually the ones that made the biggest difference to everyone around the globe. So that was something that really stuck out to me. What about you? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, as someone who's privileged enough to work in a design and innovation agency, you know, I can connect to that purpose conversation, but I've always wrestled with like, how does that really play out if you're working on a factory floor and you just want to yeah. go to work and leave at the end of the day? So we, we get to explore that. I think the other thing for me was we talked about the separation between, you know, powerful jobs that are traditionally more focused around thinking about change versus the sort of actual jobs of doing, you know, making those essential jobs we need to actually, like, execute on the change we want to see. And is this distinction actually, you know, slowing us down? And is it making it harder for us to make change? And how do we like bring those two types of people and types of work closer together? Yeah, yeah. And then thirdly, I we were able to catch Matthew Taylor at a really interesting time. He had actually um, announced his retirement to, and decision to leave the RSA. And so we actually got him the day after that. So we were able to capture kind of his raw and immediate reactions and thoughts of what's next for him and what did the meaning of work play in his own life. So that was, that was something that I'm really excited for everyone to listen to. Yeah, it was actually recorded just a few days before Christmas at the end of what guess has been a pretty eventful year for the world Um, but we got started by asking Matthew about his personal mission around the future of work and in particular what defines so-called good work. So my view on good work is basically this we will spend most of us getting on for 40% of our adult waking life working And yet, for a large number of us, work is seen as something which we do for instrumental reasons. And uh, for too many people, work is not pleasant. It's onerous and insecure. And it seems to me that one measure of a good society would be that most of us, indeed all of us, 
would see work as simply the way in which we fully express ourselves as human beings in the world. And I think it's quite telling, isn't it? That phrase that people talk about, when people talk to me about good work, they often think I'll talk about flexibility at work. And I do talk about flexibility at work. And of course, all people working from home from COVID, uh, during COVID, and what's that going to mean? That, that's all important, very important, particularly to women and to, and, to, and to carers. But the phrase work-life balance is an interesting phrase. Because what does that phrase mean? It means that you, what you need to do is to balance life which is presumably living how you want to live, making the most of your life, making the choices, you know, to, to, to exercising your autonomy and work, which is obviously not, not to do with all those things because we want to separate it from life. And I understand, I mean, you know, I'm being a bit trite because obviously people mean a spe specific thing about the way you spend your hours there. But in a way wouldn't it be good if the notion of work-life balance was meaningless? You know, yeah. I don't talk about my love, my, my relationship life balance, do I? <laughs> I don't talk about my fun life balance. I don't talk about my family life balance because those are all things that are part of my life and I choose to do them. So I think there's something quite telling about that phrase. That's something that I was really interested to talk to you about. <clears throat> so often the, um, future of work conversation ends up, you know, in this sort of eddy of artificial intelligence and work from home kind of conversations. But what I find really, really interesting is exactly as you've described, we believe the change happens at work. That's how we've kind of set ourselves up. We believe that through the kind of mundanity of the products and services that businesses and governments del deliver, we can actually change, you know, society and we can change the way that people live and we can improve things. And I feel like this, this element of really believing in the thing that you're doing um, is the one kind of confusing topic in that work-life balance conversation, in that future of work conversation, because it's not clear whether that's trying to trick people into working longer hours or whether it's possible to, um, to actually make change through the things that you do. Um, I'd be really interested to hear you know, your thoughts on how important really caring and loving uh, what you do is and also whether on the other side of that it's possible for that to be real is it possible for everyday jobs to, to make a difference yeah so it's great great question nick look i mean a couple of points first is we, we must avoid trying to impose a particular view of what good work is there is a strong subjective element to that and you know not everybody wants to do the kind of work that i want to do you know and that's okay and you know so we've got to avoid a kind of idea that ultimately the best work in the world is to be a professor of philosophy and everything else is kind of somehow you know lesser than that most professors of philosophy i know are quite miserable actually but um so let's recognize there are lots and lots of different ways to get satisfaction from work right that's important um, then I, can, I agree with you. And I think that look, the, the way that I tend to think about human beings is derived from a whole set of theories, which all use slightly different terms, but all come down to the same basic structure, which is that human beings have three, kind of, three core sets of needs. And those core needs are to do with um, mastery, which is being as good as we can be at the things we want to do. 
and generally that's a kind of authority concept because it's about looking upwards to the people who are the best at, at what it is we want to be good at and and it's about us going on that journey of development and growth and learning to become as good as we can and that as i say generally involves in some sense or other respecting authority and tradition and and wanting to cultivate our skills in that kind of way um, and then the second deep human need is connectedness and that is to do with being part of something that's bigger than ourselves uh, belonging to a group uh, having a sense as i say the kind of this is notions of solidarity and belief and belonging and the third thing is we want to enjoy ourselves you know we want to fulfill ourselves we want freedom and autonomy and choice and and these three needs uh for autonomy for mastery for connectedness which in my view also can be understood as as in the workplace as needing authority structures which we respect and which work a sense of purpose and belonging which fulfills that belonging and connectedness need and then also autonomy and the scope for us to grow and develop now that's what i think work has to that's what i think good work broadly comprises although you can look at it from different perspectives and i think the other thing to say here is that i think that when we talk about good work it is a deeply subversive concept ultimately that if you really wanted a good work society some pretty profound things would have to change and, and just very quickly spinning through them, the things that would have to change in many, many organizations is control. We would have to fundamentally change the control systems that exist within organizations in order to give people more autonomy. Competition. As long as organizations feel that the people who lead organizations, people in organizations feel the primary purpose of that organization is to compete with other organizations, that is not going to provide people with a sense of purpose or fulfillment because nobody lies on their deathbed saying, thank goodness I boosted shareholder value. Sure. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, the third C, you, you sound doing the classic thing of all these things being with, being with C. So control, competition, consumerism is the third C which is we've really had a hundred years now since Henry Ford of this kind of notion that it doesn't matter if my work's a bit shit because I can buy stuff. And that, I don't think that works for people and I don't think it works for the planet. And I think that we need to kind of recalibrate that and recognize that, that this idea that you do miserable work in order that you can buy stuff is, is, is a kind of mythical idea of, 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 of human fulfillment and, one that is still propagated in a number of different ways, but I think we just got to break out of it and say the deal, that is not a deal that we're willing to accept. And the fourth C, I would call cognitive bias, which is a view that there are only certain jobs, like the kind of jobs we've probably all got, that are ever going to be good. Yeah. Because the great jobs are all brain jobs. And, and I want to say, no, I think that, you know, I talked to David Goodhart on my podcast about this. He wrote, he's written his most recent book's called Hand, Head, Heart. The heart jobs, caring jobs, uh, are profoundly important and should be given massively more respect. We've got a huge crisis in so many countries because we don't value care sufficiently and properly. And also hand jobs. I can't make anything. I don't know how anything works, you know? I'm trying to encourage my eight-year-old daughter to become an engineer because I just feel like a whole part of me is missing. And that's partly because I just grew up thinking all the good, you know, think, assuming that all the good work with, with brain work 
you know, yeah. or, or when I say brain work, abstract brain work. And I think we've got to get away from that. We've got to have a much more pluralistic account of what good work is and what, ma- what matters in society. I think at that really high level, something that struck me with all our work across, you know, government and large organizations in particular is the separation of, in particular, the kind of work that is being done with people's hands, that kind of the doer side of things. And then, as you described, that kind of brain work, the, the strategy and, and the action um, tend to be separated. I guess it's all part of that sort of 40 and bundle that you described earlier. How important do you think or what are your thoughts on how big a part of autonomy, I suppose, is teaching people whose primary job is to think, to actually do, and vice versa, giving people whose job it is primarily to do the opportunity to to have some autonomy over what they do to to think. Yeah, look, I think that whole kind of notion of this divide between abstract thinking, strategizing, conceptualizing skills and concrete manual physical stuff is is hopeless it's a hopeless divide and it's runs through our education system in a way that's highly problematic uh you know now i don't you know in england certainly most children once they get to secondary school they're never going to do anything. They won't do any woodwork. They won't do any metalwork. They won't, you know, they'll do nothing that is around craft at all, uh, unless they're very fortunate. That whole side will be kind of lopped off from them. And, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, that's why I want, you know, that's why, you know, my, my daughter probably won't become an engineer, but that's why I've kind of say to her, look, you know, what a great thing to be an engineer, because it seems to me engineering is something which is one of the few areas which explicitly combines both these kind of sides of you, you know? Uh, And we should all, if the world, if many more people in the world had an engineering mindset, it seems to me the world would be a much, you know, better uh, uh, place. But I also think that, you know, I'm a great admirer of the work of Matt Crawford. You know, a Matt Crawford who is somebody who combines being a professor of philosophy with running a motorbike repair shop. Right. You know, writes really eloquently about the specific satisfactions and calmness that comes from working with resistant materials. You know, he writes brilliantly about when you repair a bike, that the bike's resistance to you, that you can't do whatever you want. You see, the thing is about the digital world is you can do whatever you want. I can sit in front of a screen and I can create whatever world I want to create and I can be whatever. And I think that sense of omnipotence is really problematic because of course it's not really true, but it's a fantasy that is enabled for us. And, mm. and in our heads, we can do anything. And Crawford just writes about spending four hours trying to do something to a greasy old heavy bike and the sense of that being outside you you know, that thing is outside of you. It's not inside of you where your kind of neuroses and omnipotence and all that happens. It's outside of you. And it's therefore calming in a way that being inside our own heads can never be fully calming. I'm really, I think that's really powerful. I, I find that so interesting. I'm of absolutely of that same school of thought. I also am very interested and in, engaged in, in working with my hands, building old cars, actually. And find that same thing and and i guess that's sort of the point of of my question is 
you know, how important do you think the lessons learned through doing are to the ability to form important and large scale strategies, particularly at a system level? So much, as you said earlier, um, of work today um, around change and social change is focused on big words, system change and policy and, and, and all these things that obviously, you know, draw everybody up towards that strategy side of the of, of things and away from, yeah, building a thing, building a school or, or whatever. So you go from perhaps building a classroom and really understanding what's su- su- sort of super important about a classroom that makes it a place where people can learn up to writing, for instance, policy to do with education. And it strikes me that the divorcing of those two things is at once making it harder for us to make change and also making it harder for us to enjoy our work. Yeah, I think that, that, that that's an interesting point. I mean, look, what, what I'd say is that one of the things that I've been involved in and the RSA's involved in as well a lot over the last 10 years has been this thing, which I think has been taking place all around the world, which has been trying to bring a designer's mindset into policymaking. And, you know, when I do design workshops and I did a series, a couple of, a few series of radio, BBC Radio 4, where we did this kind of, you know, design process to try and solve a real world problem. The, the people I work with on that, you know, they use post-it notes. They sometimes get people to, to mock up their idea physically using pipe cleaners and bits of cardboard and stuff like that. And, and you know, they argue very convincingly that when you have to actually make your idea, it, it, it leads to a different kind of conversation. I mean, the, one of the points they make is that when you simply talk about something, you think you might agree, yes. but actually you don't agree. But when you actually have to make it, then you need to know whether you agree because there's only going to be one object and you're going to find out then whether actually you do agree. So, you know, that's part of it. The other thing about designers, of course, is that, you know, policymakers hate mistakes. They hate mistakes because it's embarrassing and humiliating and you know if they're a politician they can lose their job designers quite like mistakes they're quite interested in mistakes you know what what does that tell us oh that's interesting so you know i made it i made this thing for people to use in this way and they're using it in a different way that's interesting well what can i do with that you know so that experimental much more experimental adaptive kind of mindset of the designer is is so i think that that what you're describing is happening actually nick because it's it's happening through the rise of social design, um, which we're seeing in cities and nations all around the world, actually. I mean, not everywhere, of course, but in, in more and more places. We obviously know, like, believe that designers are interested in mistakes and we like this idea of good work. So I think as like a closing to this episode, I guess we're curious on what, what was your decision, if you're comfortable talking about it, your decision to leave the RSA um, after 15 years of, I mean, incredible work, but kind of how does good work and how does what, you know, what you were just talking about, this social design, does that play into what's next for you? Yeah. You know, leaving the job, I'm going to reveal a little secret here. You know, I was, I nearly did something really bad, actually. Can I tell you this? Because actually the reason I'm leaving, because I've been doing it 15 years, and I'm 60 and I, and I, I kind of want to see what happens next, you know, and I, I, yeah. I think that there comes a point when the RSA could do with a bit of a new perspective, you know, and I had this little evil thought in my mind, which was well, not evil thought. I thought I could tell people that it's because I'm white and middle class 
and it's time for me to move along and create a space for somebody different. And I thought that made me look so right on. And, and I just want to say I didn't because it would have been dishonest. But so I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that because the bad Matthew would have made the claim that this decision was made in the interest of fighting um, the systems of oppression and me sacrificing my job for it. But that's not really the case. I'm doing it because I want to do it. Um, although I think it is good. Basically, it is, you know, let, let's hope that the RSA doesn't have, have, does have a different kind of person running it in the future, because that will be great as we are deeply committed to trying to tackle exclusion and increase diversity. Um, I, I guess that, that, you know, I have my whole life, maybe because I had a slightly chaotic childhood, I've all, you know, I've been driven by ambition. And I've been driven, and therefore I've always wanted to have a plan. And I have no plan anymore, and I have much less ambition. And so, you know, in the end, the ultimate reason, I know I was going to go sometime anyway, the ultimate reason was I thought I want to take a risk. And it might sound like a peculiar thing to retirement to be a risk, but I really don't know what I'll do next. And I want to hold on to that. You know, I got announced this yesterday i got two or three phone calls from people do i want to talk about this do i want to talk about that i'm glad it's christmas because i can politely say no i'm just gonna have christmas so i don't know i i really no idea you know i might i might do nothing other than read books and play the guitar badly and you know take long walks um or i might see a different organization that i want to lead i mean i, I don't know I don't know. And that's quite exciting because it's never really been the case in my life before that I have not known what I'm going to do next or I haven't had a kind of massive hunger to do a, a particular thing. And, you know, I think that's I'm very privileged, actually, to be able to be in to, to allow that to happen and to allow the possibilities to to flow over me. And good work is part of that, because the one thing is I don't now want to do anything that I don't want to do. To be honest. Beautiful. And how did you kind of come to that that point? What was that journey like to co go from wanting that plan, having that ambition, to something that is different and feels like a risk? What was that like? Um, I think, I you know, it's a slow process. Yeah. One thing that I feel strongly. And of course, I feel it strongly because I'm 60. But I felt it strongly even a long time before that is that we do in our societies underplay the, the insight that comes from being older. You know, wisdom does not count for a great deal. And, you know, you do become wiser as you become older. You know, there's lots of things you lose. You're not as inventive. You're not as creative. You're not as entrepreneurial. You can't work as hard. You certainly can't play as hard. But you do become wiser. You do become slightly less self-obsessed. Ambition is less of a kind of desperate yearning that you're following. And I think that I started just in the last few years to, to feel that. And I kind of felt I want to have sufficient time in my life, you know, God willing, that I can use that wisdom and not be on the treadmill uh, uh, anymore and that's why I want to pause and, and say the, you know the only thing I feel a certain degree of certainty about is I'd like to teach I'd like to teach undergraduates I think because I think teaching is one of the few things you get better at when you're older 
because you are you have that wisdom you have more reference points you can put knowledge in a broader context because you you have you have that broader context yourself so i would like to teach but otherwise you know who who knows who knows but um yeah that, I guess that's the journey I came to. You know, there's other bits of it as well. There, there are also just sitting in meetings and thinking, am I starting to become the problem here? You know, and I have had a bit of that as well. <laughs> so. It sounds like you're not really ready to look forward, which I think is a really, as you said, exciting kind of place to be. But in the spirit of, you know, as you said earlier, designers, um, you know, focusing in on and enjoying mistakes, like looking back on the 15 years at RSA and perhaps beyond um i'd be really interested to understand if you know any mistakes that you've made jump out any things that you would have done differently um with that kind of wisdom of age and yep. um you know particularly for people trying to lead organizations or you know drive organizations um, down the road that you've been pushing yeah i mean look in the time we've got this is i'd be very happy to talk about this in another conversation but there's a lot. And in fact, I've just written a blog that's going up, I think, in the next couple of days about one element of this, which is to do with accountability and how do you create the right ecology for accountability. I think a lot of leaders feel victims of their accountability mechanisms. And I think a good leader wants to ch shape the nature of accountability. They want, to sh they want, through a process of discourse and co-determination, to say, this is what I should be accountable for and this is who I should be accountable to. And therefore, their accountability is aligned with their own sense of what should be tried to be achieved. I think a lot of leaders go, well, I would love to do this, but unfortunately, look at my board, you know, look at the targets the government sets for me, look at what this group of activists demand of me, look at what my shareholders demand of me, and they feel a lot of self-pity. And I think that if you're a leader, you've got to try to ensure that the accountability, it's really important that you are accountable, but it's got to be an accountability framework that you are, are, are completely at home with and unashamed of. You, you want to say, yeah, I'm accountable, but the things I'm accountable for are the right things to be accountable for, and the people I'm accountable to are the right people for me to be accountable to. So that's, that's just one thing. I think at the RSA, most of the mistakes I've made were to do with going too quickly. You know, and I, 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 that's an example of this age thing, really. I'm, if I'd heard myself 20 years ago saying the biggest mistakes I've made is going too quickly, I'd have thought, oh, my God, that's a kind of really conservative view of the world. But it's true. You know, I could have achieved more at the RSA had I not tried to make some of the changes before the organization was ready for them. But that's a characteristic of the RSA because it's a particular idiosyncratic combination of different facets you couldn't create the RSA tomorrow. It's it's a you know it's got it's been around two hundred and sixty years, and actually the RSA can only go forward as fast as you can hold all of that stuff together. Different organisations are different though. So that's the other thing I want to say is I don't really believe in leadership as a generic thing. I think leadership is so context specific, and so the mistakes I made at the RSA were the mistakes I made because of the RSA and, and me. I, if I went to a different organisation, I might need to be really as fast and dynamic as I possibly could. Matthew Taylor, thanks ever so much for joining us. This show is brought to you by Future Friendly, a design and innovation studio based out of Australia. Let's make the future together today. <laughs>